Attention audience, anyone sitting in the first three rows may get wet because we are going to be talking about baptism. Hey everybody, my name is Ray Burns and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, I want us to think biblically about baptism. And more specifically, I'm going to be addressing this to those Christians out there who have not been baptized and are not in a word, scheduled to get baptized anytime soon. Now, the reason I want to talk about this is, honestly, because my church is currently doing baptisms, and when I was listening to one of the testimonies that somebody gave about how Christ saved them, they talked about how they were actually kind of scared to get up and talk to people and share their testimony, and so they had put off baptism. And that uh, really just got me thinking about all the different reasons that I've heard people say or when I've talked to people about why they are saved but are waiting to get baptized. And, you know, for me, this actually goes all the way back to when I was a kid growing up in church. And I remember that there was this kind of idea that may or may not have been spoken, but it was this idea that you got saved and that was this huge monumental decision that you made. But then baptism, that was kind of the next big decision that you made. So you had to make this very serious choice to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And then when enough time had passed and when you felt ready, then you would also get baptized. And to be clear, I grew up in a Baptist church. So it wasn't some salvific thing where you got baptized to confirm your salvation or to get saved again or to maybe get the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, like maybe a charismatic church or you know something like that. It was a very straight-laced, conservative, Christian, Baptist upbringing that I had. And that was kind of the atmosphere that I experienced, was that baptism was just this big, serious ordeal that you had better be really prepared to do. And as I've grown older, as I've learned more, And as I've experienced more than just that one church that I grew up in, I've started realizing that this is, number one, a very common idea. It seems that a lot of people, as we'll find from this discussion, don't understand baptism, and so they treat it as this huge thing that Christians are expected and maybe even encouraged to wait years to do. But I've also realized that it's an incredibly unbiblical way of thinking. And I think, as always, it all boils down to us just not knowing how to think about baptism properly or not understanding maybe the point of it or what it means or maybe why it's even important in the first place. And so before jumping into this discussion, uh, let's just lay out that the Bible does expect baptism to happen. Uh, We can see this in the early church in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So once they believed the gospel, and not just were convinced mentally, but we understand that this means that they came to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ and cried out to him for salvation, then after believing, they were baptized. So this is this is spoken of, especially through the book of Acts, but just throughout the New Testament, there's this implicit and sometimes explicit idea that once you get saved, you get baptized. So 
we're just going to assume that that is true, that Christians ought to be baptized. So the question here then is, why aren't people getting baptized? What excuses are people making or what reasons do they feel they have for not being baptized after salvation? Or do we need to get baptized immediately after salvation? And so what we're going to look at is this will be valuable for everyone, but really, if you are a Christian who has not been baptized and are not scheduled, not preparing to be baptized, because, for example, some churches will baptize as soon as someone requests it. Some will kind of do batch baptisms, which is what we do at my church, where we will just have a whole Sunday morning dedicated to baptism. So if you are a Christian who is not on the path towards getting baptism, you have not already committed to it, then this is going to be maybe a hard-hitting episode and one that I want you to to think honestly about and be humble about. I will, of course, be gentle and loving in it, but I am going to be very blunt in some of the things that I say. And so if you are listening to this and have not been baptized, uh, all I can really ask is that you just understand what God's Word says and desire to act out in obedience, even if that may be challenge something that you may have already believed or understood. And just a quick note that this is going to be a longer episode. And so if you want to just skip to maybe the excuse that stands out to you or that you want to hear more about, I will have timestamps down in the show notes so that you can just jump straight to wherever it is that you want to be. So all that being said, let's look at just three bad reasons that people have for not getting baptized. Now, the first reason is that someone is just not sure that they're saved. And I want to be clear here. I don't want anyone to get baptized if they are genuinely not sure they're saved. Because let's take an extreme example. If someone came to the church and said, I am a professing atheist. I do not believe in Jesus Christ. I do not believe in God. I'd like to be baptized. We would hope that a church would stick to biblical truth enough to say, I'm sorry, but that is not what baptism is for. Baptism is for believers. And so understanding that, we of course would not want someone who may be an atheist, may not truly believe in God, may not actually be saved. We would not want to have someone like that get baptized falsely if they're not sure, because that can lead to issues of false assurance, because you'll have people say, well, I was baptized, so I guess I'm saved. Uh, You'll have people who maybe they get older, they go later in life, and they realize that their original profession of faith was not true, and so their baptism was not done as a believer. And that is actually what happened to me. I was saved when I was 10 and got baptized and then realized when I was 18 that I basically just prayed a prayer, having no idea what was happening. And so I was baptized a second time. Uh, But you can also have um, a lot of hurt that comes because if that person is not truly saved and they abandon the faith, then that added confirmation and celebration of their salvation can lead to even more hurt for the believers that they leave behind. So objectively speaking, it is not wrong not to get baptized if you're not sure you're saved. Where this becomes bad or where this becomes problematic is when someone spends months or even years not getting baptized because they're not sure they're saved. And so what's really happening here is that they are not working out their salvation. They're not seeking truth. They are not trying to find 
any form of assurance or an understanding of what it truly means to be saved by Jesus Christ so that they can know that they have eternal life. And, you know, we can read in God's word that this doesn't have to be a mystery. Uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 to 13, it says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the book of 1 John is a book that I really love. It's, it's very straight to the point. It's very practical for the Christian life. But John concludes it by basically saying that he wrote this particular peace so that the Christians he was writing to would have confidence that they have eternal life, that they could have assurance that they wouldn't have to wonder if they had eternal life. And so as Christians, we need to realize that our eternal destiny doesn't have to be a mystery. No, we don't get a sticker, a membership card, a handwritten letter by God saying, you are definitely saved. You are written in the land's book of life. Here's your receipt. You know, we don't have anything like that, but we can have assurance and confidence based on what we know and what we believe and what we trust. So how do we get this eternal life? Because that's ultimately the question someone needs to be asking, you know, is it this big complicated thing? Are there a bunch of boxes that we need to check? And I'm going to say, no, our assurance is very simple because the only thing that really determines whether we have eternal life is if we ha have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So let's just briefly go through what that means. And I'm not going to spend necessarily a long time on this. I would encourage you to go if you want to know more, uh, click the link down in the show notes to actually read the article where I go a little more in depth with this. But just very briefly, we see in John 524, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So believing in Christ, having faith in Christ, that is how we get eternal life. It's not a complicated thing because the real nutshell of our assurance comes from, like I said, what it is that we're believing. So let's just make this very bare bones. Again, if you want to read more, if you want to see a lot more of the scripture that I talk about, uh, go check the article, but very just straight to the point. If you are not sure that you have eternal life, if you are not assured, if you don't have confidence, then just kind of ask yourselves these questions. Do you recognize the reality of your sin? that you have broken God's law and that you stand guilty before God because you know that God hates sin. Sin is not this, oops, I messed up. It is a horrible thing before God. Do you also realize that because God is good and just, he has to punish law-breaking and especially those who break the law? So while yes, God is love, we also know that we would expect a good judge just in our human courts we would expect a good judge to punish someone who broke the law. You wouldn't want them to let a murderer off or a sex offender off simply because they were a good person otherwise. We know inherently that evil needs to be punished. It deserves to be punished. And so because of the reality of our sin, we know that God has to punish our sin. And because of that reality, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot do enough good works to cover our bad. We broke the law and that law breaking must be punished. So understanding all of that, that we cannot save ourselves. Do you realize that you need Jesus Christ to save you 
and to grant you forgiveness of your sins because Jesus Christ lived that perfect life because he is God. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross. And because he had none of his own sin to pay for, he could pay for your sin. He could take God's punishment and God's wrath because of your law-breaking. And if you ask Christ to save you, if you ask him to forgive you, if you if you hate your sin and want to turn away from your sin and turn towards Jesus Christ for salvation, then Christ promises that you will be saved and that you are saved and that you are saved forever. Because if you, uh, the classic line of, if you can't do anything to save yourself, you can't do anything to lose your salvation. Christ did it all. Christ saved you and Christ secures you. So if you're someone who's sitting there and you're just not sure because you feel like you can't know, then just realize salvation is very simple. Do you believe what the Bible says about sin? Do you believe what the Bible says about God's law and his holiness and his justice? Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? And understanding all of that, has that prompted you or led you to ask Jesus Christ to save you and to forgive you? If you've called upon his name, you are saved. And if you have that assurance, then you no longer have a reason not to be baptized, as we will talk about. But if you're still not sure, then realize what Philippians 2.12 says. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You need to work out your salvation. Don't just whittle away months or years of your life wondering and being unsure and rejecting baptism because you're essentially dragging your feet and maybe even being lazy because you don't want to deal with the reality of whether you are or are not saved. Because realize, tomorrow is not guaranteed. There is no guarantee that you're even going to finish this episode without dying. And you will eventually stand before God. And you want to have that confidence. You want to have that assurance. Because while tomorrow isn't guaranteed, eternal life is promised to those who have been redeemed by Christ. So work out and make sure that that truly is you. And if it is then don't delay in obeying and becoming baptized. That being said, number two, another reason that people don't get baptized is that they don't understand what baptism is in the first place, or they don't understand why they should do it. And this is where I expect a lot of people find themselves. They hear about baptisms, they maybe see it at church, they're told that they should do it, but without really knowing why, a lot of people just don't until they feel like it or they feel led to or they feel an overwhelming conviction to do so. So if you are someone who feels like they need to have good motivation, they need to have someone call them out on it, they, they want to be told what to do, they want it to be clear, then let me be that voice that is saying it very clearly to you. You need to be baptized. If you are not being baptized, if you are not working towards being baptized, you are choosing to walk in active disobedience to God. And let's not split any hairs on it. You are choosing to walk in sin. So even if you don't understand baptism, just realize that if you are choosing not to be baptized, you are choosing to sin. Now, let's get into why I say that. So Matthew 28, 19, Jesus Christ says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we hear this all the time in baptisms, right? I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But realize the logic of what Jesus Christ said here. He didn't say go and make disciples and baptize them when they're ready. There is an equal immediacy to both of these. 
Disciples need to be made. People need to be saved now, today. Not waiting around, not dragging their feet on making a decision for salvation. In addition, they also need to be baptized. There's a, a link and a correlation to becoming baptized. Now, obviously, it is not baptism that saves us. But it is assumed all throughout Scripture that it is, it is a natural next step of salvation. We'll see this later on in Romans 6 when I get into that as another part of this discussion. But all throughout Scripture, whenever people are talking about salvation, there is very often a close link to they are saved and then baptized. There's no months, there's no years, there's no big decision, there's no being ready for baptism. Baptism is simply a natural next step after salvation. It does not save, but it is an act of obedience that is expected to come basically right after salvation. Again, if, if you are working towards it, I'm not saying that you need to panic and call up your pastor and say, I know I'm supposed to be baptized next week, but I don't want to be disobedient for the next three days. That's not what I'm saying. But instead, what I'm saying is that if you are not working towards it, then you are not filling out or living out what Jesus Christ has called believers to do, and that is to be baptized after salvation. So let's see this just again throughout scripture. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, let's, we'll just start it off with a really confusing verse, because isn't this saying that baptism saves? Well, no, it's not, because look at what it's saying. If you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. But how are you condemned? Look at the verse. It says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the only thing that condemns you, the only thing that prohibits you from having eternal life, the only thing that's going to essentially send you to hell and eternal damnation is not believing in Jesus Christ. But it says that whoever believes is logically, naturally going to be baptized. And those are the ones who are going to be saved. Now, if you believe and are not baptized, you're still saved. But again, there is just this natural assumption in scripture that when you are saved, you are also baptized. They are linked in a way that, as we'll discuss, your baptism is kind of an outward confirmation of what has happened inside. And so why would you not have your life purchased by the blood of Christ and not just tell people about it. And baptism is a part of telling people about it. We see also Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, we see repentance and baptism are linked. It says to repent and then be baptized because your sins have been forgiven not repent and eventually get baptized. They are linked. There is an equal immediacy to them. They are spoken of in the same breath as though they should happen in the same day even. Let's see it even more clearly perhaps. Acts twenty-two sixteen. This is where Paul has met Christ, been blinded, and goes to Ananias who then tells him this. He says, Ananias says to Paul, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Again, why do you wait? He asked that to Paul, and I think that we should ask that to ourselves. Why are you waiting? If you realize who Jesus Christ is, if you have essentially committed your life to him, if you have 
realize that he is the Lord, then why are you waiting to be baptized? To wait is disobedience. Or we can look at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, which gives us really kind of a model for how I think we should be responding to this. So the quick background of this is that Philip comes upon someone reading the scripture and he says, basically, he doesn't know what he's reading. So Philip explains it to him. This eunuch realizes who Jesus Christ is and becomes a Christian right there. And then we pick it up in Acts chapter eight, verse 36. It says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So, again, this eunuch has just called upon the Lord for salvation. And his natural question is, Hey, I'm saved. Here's some water. Why not? Right? And what does Philip say? No, have you really thought about this? Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you're ready? This is a big commitment. No, Philip, perhaps mere minutes after this Ethiopian's salvation says, oh yeah, let's go, let's, let's head on down to the river. Let's get this baptism thing done. And so they do. Again, we have to see here that there is just an immediacy. There is a link. There's a correlation. There is no separation between your salvation and then your eventual baptism. Sometimes maybe it can happen day of. Sometimes maybe you need to just wait until your church kind of gets their their baptism clusters going. But whatever it is, if you are not on your way to the tub, the bath, the river, however your church does baptisms, if you are not on your way there right now, you have to face the reality that you are, no questions asked, choosing to disobey God. God has said... You get saved and then you get baptized. You don't get baptized to get saved. But even if you understand nothing else about baptism, when you get saved, you obey God and then get baptized. Perhaps as one of your first acts of obedience as a spirit indwelt follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe one of the first things you do to obey God is to go get baptized. But regardless, wherever you are, maybe you've been saved for 10 years, go get baptized baptized. Obey your God. Nothing magical is going to happen. You aren't going to be extra saved, nothing like that, but you will be walking in obedience and you will be turning away from days, months, years of active disobedience to your God. However, I will also recognize as one of these people myself that it can sometimes be hard to obey things without really understanding why. That's not an excuse. We don't have to obey or understand God before we obey God, but it can help, right? Because we know that God's not random. He didn't just roll a dice in heaven one day, consult a chart and say, oh, I rolled a five. Uh, Okay, baptism. That's what they have to do to obey me. No, God makes all his laws, all his decisions, all his desires based on his character. And it's all done with some purpose in mind. So this is not necessarily an episode on what is baptism, but I will very much respect that there are some out there who will desire to say, hey, God is saying that this is an act of obedience, that I am sinning, that I am placing sin on Christ by choosing not to be baptized right now. So why? Why is that such a big deal to God? And so what I'd like to do as briefly as I can 
And if you're familiar around here, you know what that actually means. But let's just try to look through how baptism, as we understand it today, has been kind of a slow grow throughout all of God's word, throughout all of biblical history. So first, let's talk about water and the significance of it in the Old Testament. So throughout the Old Testament, water has represented either cleansing or a purification. And I mean that both literally, because water literally cleans, but also symbolically, in that by being cleaned, by dipping yourself in water and following this ritual, you will be considered spiritually or ritually clean before God. And I will say, if you want to dig even more into this, go check my article. I have a lot of scripture that really digs into this, and I'm just going to try to hit the highlights for sake of this episode. But you can see it throughout the Old Testament that people are constantly told for one reason or another, whatever they've done to to dirty themselves, to become unclean, God calls for them to wash and bathe themselves in water, and then they will be considered clean. But for just a quick look, let's just look at Exodus 30:17, and just take a quick look at a commandment for how water was used. So it says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go in the, into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering for the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. So look how critical this was. Now, obviously there was nothing magical in this water, but by using the water, God was establishing something in the minds of Israel. He was creating a pattern that water equals a cleansing. It equals a purifying. And so in order for people to engage with God, to interact with God, or even to be part of the nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people, they had to be clean. They had to be pure to stand before God and be a part of his people. And so again, we're going to see this builds on itself as we get to modern day baptism. But for now, when we're in the Old Testament, water is a purification and God demands purity to be a part of him and his people. Now, as we kind of start bridging between the Old and the New Testament, we begin the New Testament by seeing John the Baptist giving a new spin to a very common practice of the day. So we can see this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Now, for sake of time, I will not read the full thing. I would, of course, encourage you to go and check it out. But just some highlights. Uh, it starts off saying that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then jumping down, it says, Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then along come some Pharisees, and John has some very colorful words for them, as John the Baptist was prone to do. And then he clarifies what it is that he's doing. And he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, for he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
So essentially, John the Baptist was paving the way for Jesus Christ. He came and he was preaching a repentance from sins. And those who desired to repent of their sins and to truly follow God, they made a public declaration of that inward repentance by being baptized. They were declaring to those around and declaring to the world what had happened to them. And they did this by being baptized. And that means essentially fully submerged in water and being brought out of it. Now, again, this baptism wasn't saving them, but they were doing it as a response to their repentance. Just like we talked about with how the New Testament writers always assume that baptism follows repentance. It's a natural response to it. We see this even with the ministry of John the Baptist going on. But we also see that this wasn't some new thing. This isn't even explained. It's assumed that the reader, because again, remember, the Bible's not written to us. It was written to people in that day. It's assumed that people in that day already knew what this baptism symbolized, but that John the Baptist was doing something different with it. Now, I'll be honest, the Old Testament doesn't really clarify what baptism signified then. So we actually have to consult some resources outside of the Bible to understand this. And I'll spare you from how much time I spent banging my head against the computer trying to track down some good sources, but finally I did. And so what is very likely is that this is a practice that Jews even today still practice. So it wasn't commanded of them by God in our Old Testament canon, but it is a practice that the Jews had that it seems that they can trace back to that period of time between the Old and New Testament. And now what this practice was for Jews of that time is that if you had a Gentile, and remember Gentiles are basically just anyone who's not a Jew. So if you had basically an outsider to the Jewish faith, come along and want to join Judaism, wanted to be part of the Jewish family because they weren't born to it by birth, but they wanted to be a part of it in name, if you will, or spiritually speaking, they would have to essentially become ritually clean. Now, there was a two-step process to this. One, we actually do have in God's word, and that is in Exodus 12, 48, where if a a sojourner or an outsider wanted to join the Jewish faith, they had to be circumcised because that was a commandment that God gave to Israel that the males had to be circumcised. So we do have that in God's word. Uh, But then men and women would also need to be ritually cleansed from head to toe in a river or in a bath called a mikvah. And if you speak Hebrew or maybe it's Yiddish, I apologize if mikvah is not the correct pronunciation of that. I don't speak it, but ultimately what this pictured is when a person would, would go into this bath, they would start out unclean. They would be a non-Jew and therefore unclean, Uh, but they would be submerged into these cleansing waters. And when they came up, they would be cleaned. They would be in a way, a new person, no longer an unclean Gentile, but now a Jew. And they would be part of this new Jewish family. So in a way, they were given a new identity and a new life and were born a second time as Jews now. And so in a nutshell, what baptism was in that day was a dedication to saying, I now identify myself with this way of life. 
And so Jews would do this for Jewish converts. And so John the Baptist then was sitting there and baptizing people who were joining a new family in a same way. But instead of joining the Jewish faith, they were essentially joining what is kind of a proto-Christianity or a, a version of Christianity before Christ was fully on the scene. But between Jews and between John the Baptist, they were doing a similar thing. They were showing a picture of dying to your old self and then coming back to life as a new person or a new creation with a new identity. So then kind of understanding that, what, what, how waters represented cleansing in the Old Testament, how early baptism represented a commitment to a new life, a declaration to the world that you are joining this new family— we can now get into the New Testament meaning as we understand baptism today. Because after Christ, we can now see sort of the full picture of what baptism represents. Because as we read New Testament writers, often a lot of things that may have been fuzzy or unclear or even confusing in the New Testament or in the Gospels are kind of fully realized after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... As we get into this and when we understand the significance of baptism, we can understand why God would call for us to make this declaration or to unite ourselves or to identify ourselves with what baptism represents. So Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. And as always, if you're not driving, I'd encourage you to follow along so you don't get lost. But this you know, if you're familiar with this, I really like this when I'm talking about just our freedom from sin and our our newfound identity in Jesus Christ. But what we're going to look at here instead is what this says about baptism. So Romans 6 verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, quick bit of commentary here. Notice what it's saying is that our baptism, when we are baptized, it is a representation of us being killed and buried with Jesus Christ. In other words, our old nature, our old sinful self, was buried and killed with Jesus Christ and our being plunged into the waters of baptism represents that death. And then just as we come out of the water, it represents Christ coming back to life, being resurrected and us like him having a new life, walking in, as it says, a newness of life. And then continuing on, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So, first thing to notice is, like I said, Paul, when he says, when he's talking to this church in Rome, he's just making a natural assumption. Hey, every single Christian I'm writing to, you know how you've been baptized? Think about what that means. That's what Paul's saying to them. He is he has no concept in his mind that he could possibly be talking or addressing any Christian who has not also been baptized. And when we read this, we get a better understanding of why that would be, why it's just assumed that somebody would identify themselves with Jesus Christ through what baptism symbolizes. 
Because really, baptism is a beautiful and exciting declaration of what has happened. We have died to sin. Our obligation to sin, our slavery to sin, our ongoing penalty that is coming due because of sin. We were guilty. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but Christ died for us. And with Christ's death, with him paying the penalty for our sin, we likewise, that old man, as as scripture calls it, our old self, our old sinful selves, who we used to be, we died with Jesus Christ. And as Christ came back to life, was resurrected, announcing his victory over sin and death, we too, today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are no longer bound by sin. You are not bound by the penalty of sin, and you are not bound by the requirement to sin. Instead, we get to walk as new creations in a newness of life through the power of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross and what he proved and declared through his resurrection. And so when we are getting baptized, we are saying that this has happened in my heart. I have confessed my sin to Jesus Christ. I have repented from sin. I have given to him and I have trusted him for salvation. I have died and have been resurrected through Jesus Christ. And I am declaring that to everyone here today, that I have been cleansed and I stand pure before God. I die to my old self and I have been resurrected into a new identity in Jesus Christ, a new family. I am a citizen of a completely different kingdom. And that is how we see baptism kind of evolve or progress throughout the Bible, right? Old Testament, water is a purifying. It's, it lets us stand before God. Just as Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, his sacrifice is what lets us stand before God. And we are no longer citizens of this world. We are no longer bound to the world's way of thinking. We are now citizens of heaven. We are new creations. We identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and not the world, not our own desires. Jesus Christ is our identity, just like what John the Baptist was doing when he was taking that Jewish practice of people publicly declaring their new identity, their new citizenship. So our baptism is our announcement that we have undergone a completely new identity and a new life through Jesus Christ. And that is why baptism is important. That is why we want to walk in that obedience is because it is God saying, hey, you've undergone this internally. Now declare it outwardly. Tell others, celebrate with others the joy and the marvel of God taking an enemy and making him a friend. That's why we get baptized. It's not some magical thing. It's not some weird thing or some weird cultic ritual. It's just our public declaration that God has called us to do to remember what has happened internally through Jesus Christ. So again, you don't have to understand why God calls us to be baptized in order to obey. Whether you understand it or not, if you're not getting baptized, you are choosing disobedience. However, I hope this part of the discussion has at least made it clear, made it logical, make it make a little more sense on why it is so important or why there is an urgency to it and why ultimately it's not a big decision. It's not something that should take months or years for us to choose. If we are confident in the internal change, then we should be immediate to publicly declare it through telling others about Christ, certainly, but also through baptism and what it signifies and what it's telling others. So go through again, read those first verses in Romans 6 and realize that by not proclaiming to the world through baptism that you are a new citizen, 
that you are walking in disobedience. Baptism is an important thing. It's not important to your salvation, but it's important to your obedience, to what God expects of his children. And then finally, we're going to switch gears completely. And for number three, the last excuse for why someone might not be getting baptized is that they're afraid of being in front of people. So I feel like we're kind of running the gamut on different topics here. We've talked about how to be sure of your salvation. We have talked about kind of historically and theologically why baptism matters. Now we're going to do a little bit of counseling on a fear of public speaking or standing in front of others. So where this comes from is that baptisms will very often feature not just someone being dipped in water, but before that, standing up and just sharing their testimony and talking about what Christ has done, what that internal change was. They'll talk about who they were before, the means and circumstances that God used to bring them to an understanding that they needed Christ. They will share how they cried out to Christ and maybe even talk about where Christ has has brought them since then. So, I will argue that that is not necessarily demanded as part of baptism, but I will say that it is something that has a lot of value and has persisted for a reason. And that is that oftentimes that public declaration where we are, someone is standing up there and explaining what this their salvation experience was like, a lot of times that is what a lot of people will say as was the turning point that God used in their own salvation journey. And I can tell you, two of my daughters, God used the the time of baptism and the testimonies to get my two daughters thinking about their own salvation. So it is a good thing. And it is, again, not a necessarily biblically commanded thing, but I think it is an incredibly valuable tradition that we shouldn't just throw away because of the what it takes for people to get up and talk in front of others. But I also recognize that for many people, this tradition is incredibly terrifying. And especially today, we live in a culture where people are crippled by a fear of others, by standing up and being unable to speak or not speaking perfectly or doing something to embarrass themselves or whatever reason we have for being scared of public speaking. Uh, There's one report I found that suggests that over 70% of the American population has some form of public speaking anxiety. 70%, that is a large amount. I mean, let's let's just call it what it is, right? That is a huge amount of the population that is scared to stand up. And if 100% of Christians are called upon to stand up and tell others about what Christ did in saving them, then 70% of the people who stand up there have some form of anxiety or fear. And I assume a lot of people who aren't getting baptized aren't doing it simply because they are afraid, not of being baptized, not of being unsaved, but simply because they don't want to stand up and talk in front of people. And now here is the problem. I assume it's obvious at this point, but if refusing to be baptized is a form of disobedience to God, then ultimately what we are saying is that my fear is more important to me than my obedience. I am so afraid that I will put the fear of other people, people who love me, people who are excited to hear about what Jesus Christ has done for an unworthy sinner. My fear of them is greater than my fear and respect and awe of God. And so these people are 
controlled by their fear. They choose to let their fear of others control them more than being controlled by their love of God or their obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to say, if this is you, and maybe it's not even with baptism, but just in general, you are afraid of talking to others because you're, you just have some kind of social anxiety, then the only way to get over it is to start by being honest with yourself. Because we live in a culture, unfortunately, that doesn't just have a lot of people who are afraid, but it it encourages people to let that define them and control them. There are people who the majority of what they talk about or what they feel is wrapped up in, I can't because I'm scared of crowds or I'm scared of others. I'm scared of talking to people. I'm scared of going out. There are, there are people in our churches and outside our churches who just live in a constant state of being controlled by their fear of other people. And as followers of Christ, we cannot be controlled by anything but the Holy Spirit. We cannot be controlled by alcohol. We cannot be controlled by drugs or TV or porn addictions. And we also can't be controlled by our fear of other people. And so if that's you in any capacity, I'm going to share some comfort and encouragement, but also challenge from God's word. And as I'm doing it, it is going to be vital that you set aside any excuses that our culture allows you to make and realize that if you are not getting baptized because you're afraid of speaking in front of people, there's no there's no way around it. You're being controlled by fear. You're living in fear. You're choosing to sin because of your fear. I don't say that meanly or judgmentally or to make you feel bad, but I say it to just call it what it is. It's a choosing to live in disobedience because of fear. And so we need to reject how the world conditions us to be controlled and defined by our fears or anxieties or any mental health issues that we may feel we have. And maybe by the end of this, some people need to cry out to God for repentance and realize that they have been choosing fear over God. They have been choosing to let other people control them and be more important to them than God. And maybe some people are going to realize that they were worshiping the opinions of others more than worshiping their God. So let's see what God's word, though, has to say for anyone out there who may be struggling to get baptized because they don't want to stand in front of people. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Hebrews 13, 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, these three passages make us ask a very important question. What is it that we really are afraid of? We say we're scared of getting up in front of people. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of crowds, whatever it is. But what is it that we are truly and genuinely afraid of? The passage in Matthew says not to fear people who can kill you and just end your life here, but rather to fear God who can destroy everything, who has ultimate power. Now, that's an extreme example, right? I don't think anyone is afraid that if they get up and give their salvation testimony, at least here in America, I don't think anyone is actually afraid that 
other Christians in the audience are going to be so offended at how they maybe said the wrong word or stumbled over their words or drew a blank or got lost in thought or whatever and are going to be so angry at it that they're going to come up and kill them right there on the stage. So the extreme of Matthew 10, 28, talking about don't fear those who can kill you, but fear God who can ultimate, has ultimate power over you. Like, we're not even experiencing the extreme of what that's saying. We're just saying, oh, I'm scared that people might laugh at me or talk about me for one or two days before completely forgetting about me. So really, what we're afraid of is nothing at all. Compared to what else God is calling us to or what God calls other Christians to around the world or what he may call us to in the future, standing up and glorifying God and serving him through just speaking for a few minutes is nothing. What it really is the worst thing that's going to happen? At the absolute worst, people will laugh. People will make fun of us. So what? We've obeyed God. We've brought glory to him. Many more people are going to be encouraged, even if we mess up, even if we stumble over our words. People are going to be encouraged because ultimately what we're saying is not, I am a brilliant orator. I know how to tell great stories. I have, you know, beautiful wordplay. No, what people are hearing is I was an enemy of God. I was living for myself. I was trusting in myself for happiness, for satisfaction, for salvation. But then God brought me under an overwhelming conviction to where I had no choice but to call out to Jesus Christ for rescue and salvation. And it is only by his power that I can stand here as a child of God. That is what a true follower of Christ is going to hear, and they are going to glorify God no matter how poorly we may deliver it. So what are we afraid of? Hebrews 13.6 says, The Lord is my helper, and so I won't fear, because what can man do to me? What's the audience going to do to you? The Proverbs passage to fear people is a trap. It's something that we can fall down in and not escape. But trusting God is what keeps us safe. So as you're wondering, you know, can I really get up there? I just, I can't do it, I'm too afraid. Just ask yourself what you're trusting in. Who are you putting your faith in? Who are you putting your satisfaction in? Who are you trying to impress or please or glorify? If you're wanting to serve God, then who cares what the audience says or does? Who cares? We serve God, not them. And maybe this is a good time to talk about idolatry and how we we make the idea of public opinion or talking to others into a God on its own. Because really, we when we fear others, what we're really saying is that others have control over me. They are the ones who tell me that I have value, that I have worth, whether or not I should be happy with myself, whether or not I should be pleased with who I am or what I've done. That is a form of worship. We give an awe and a respect and a reverence and even a fear to other people if we allow them to dictate what we do and don't do. And the ridiculousness of it is that it's not even true people telling us what to do. It's our assumptions. It's our imaginations about them. And that's what controls us. We don't do things because of what might happen. We fear the unknown. We fear the future. And so we, we don't stand up, we don't get in front of people, we don't talk to others because we have conjured up an imaginary scenario and an imaginary person and we let that dictate us more than letting the true God have a say and have dominion over our decisions and our desires and our actions. And so if we are worshiping the opinions of others so much that it's determining our actions, then that tells us what our true God is in that moment. If our joy or sorrow, if our happiness or sadness, if our self-worth 
is found in how others think of us or respond to us or what we think they think or or say about us, then we're not fearing God. We're fearing others. And that leads us into Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here, Paul makes it very blunt and maybe painful. He says that we are making one of two decisions. If our actions reflect someone who is serving man, then we are not serving Christ. And if we are seeking to serve Christ, we are not going to be concerned with pleasing other people. We just can't do it. They are not compatible things. So when it comes to baptism, if you are saying, I will not serve, I will not obey because I'm afraid of others, then you're not being a servant of Christ. That's not to say you're not saved, but in that moment, in those actions you're taking, in those thoughts that you're having, in the fears that you have, what you're really, truly, and ultimately saying is that I want to serve man. I want to fear man. So read Galatians 1.10 and ask yourself, with how you're thinking of baptism, with how you're thinking of that, that moment of standing up and declaring the good and incredible thing that Christ has done for you. If you are refusing to do it, can you really and truly be honest with yourself in saying that you're doing it because your greatest desire is to serve and obey your God? Now, another thing I wanna point out with this idea is that by letting fear control us, we are giving up self-control. So again, just like an alcoholic who gives into alcohol is no longer no longer being controlled by God, but has given up all sense of self-control and instead is being controlled by alcohol, so someone who has social anxiety who lets that control them, they give up their self-control because they let something else control us. So 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. So the Holy Spirit living inside of us is the one who equips us to serve God. It's not just this power we have in ourselves. It's not just us being better people. Because ultimately, you can still have some sense of not liking getting up and speaking in front of people, but you can still do it. To the glory of God and out of obedience to him, you can say, I don't like it. Maybe I'm still a little scared of it and I'm not fully surrendered to God in it. But despite that, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in me, I know that I can get up and speak. Maybe it won't be pretty, but it will be beautiful because I will be pointing people to Jesus Christ. And so don't give up your self-control and let fear be the thing that drives you. And then from there, I want to point out who it is that we are serving when we're doing these testimonies and what it is that should be driving us. So Colossians 3, 23-24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So let that be what you're doing. When you get up there and you are sharing, when you're serving at church, when you're serving others, whatever it is, whatever you do in life, baptism time or otherwise, work heartily as for the Lord. Do it for God and not for men. Because if we are being obedient to God, he is pleased. And if pleasing God is where ultimate satisfaction is, then no matter how that public speaking time goes, God is going to be pleased with us for those two, three, five, ten minutes that we spent 
talking about him because we were doing it to serve him. Now, even with all that, you can get here and maybe you're realizing, yes, I am being controlled by my fear. I am loving the opinions of others more than God. I am choosing disobedience out of a fear and love for something more than my God. And maybe, maybe you've already repented. Maybe you are ready, but you still have a little fear. You still have some doubt, some anxiety, some butterflies in your stomach. I want to tell you that there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get up and speak in front of people and not have sweaty palms and wobbly knees. You might still get up there and you, your voice may crack and you may sweat and you may just feel miserable the whole time. Maybe God will take that from you. Maybe God will give you boldness and courage. But just remember, if you do find yourself still worrying, remember what Philippians 4 verses 6 to 7 say. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. So the key to overcoming this anxiety is not thinking better. It's not reprogramming our minds. It's trusting God. Because what this passage is saying is that if you have fear, if you are anxious, go to God pray to him, trust him, rely on him, and God will give you peace. He will give you rest in a way that doesn't make sense by worldly standards. Again, maybe that will manifest itself in a removal of our fear entirely. Maybe it will manifest itself in our ability to say, despite my fear, despite my anxiety, Despite me being a sinful creature who fears the unknown because I don't know how people are going to speak and react, I will not be controlled. I will go up there trusting in my God. I will have peace and rest in Jesus Christ and rely on God, not myself, to go up there and boldly declare what God has done for me. And you can do that through God. It's not just about going up there when you feel like it. It's not about knowing that you can do it whenever you feel like you can do it, because oftentimes we are still weak when God uses us. Think about 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So in our circumstance, and I don't want to take this verse out of context, but as we are thinking about what that means that God's grace is sufficient for us, it's not our boldness. It's not our capabilities. It's not how we feel whether it's our emotions, whether it's physically, it's not how we feel that is necessary. God's grace is sufficient for us. And then he says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, I know I need to get baptized, but I'm scared. I don't feel able to stand up in front of people then what you're really saying is, I don't feel like I can do it because I am weak. I am too weak to stand up in front of people without fear. Then good, be weak. Go to God and tell him exactly that. And know that it is not your power that you need to rest in. It's not your abilities that you need to rest in in order to stand up before others to publicly declare your testimony before being baptized. God's power is shown through our weakness. So if you are someone who gets up there and you are nervous and you cry because 
if if listening to years of, of baptism testimonies have taught me anything, it's that the majority of people, men and women, are going to be up there and they're going to cry. Whether they're overwhelmed by what God has done, whether it's because they are just nervous and afraid, whether it's a mixture of both, which I assume it is. Regardless, what everyone sees and hears during those times is people who are scared. They are nervous, but they are thrilled. They are excited. They are in love because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And all they are doing up there is they are saying, I am weak, but I want to talk to you and share with you briefly about my strong God. So don't be controlled by anxiety. Don't rely on how you feel to determine whether you're going to get up there and tell others about Christ. Rest in God. Trust in Jesus Christ. Pray, pray earnestly, pray a lot, and trust that even if God doesn't take away fear like you think he should or like you would prefer, trust that his power is going to get you through a few minutes of standing up in front of a group of people who at the very least are going to love you because you're talking to them about the same experience that they've had with a beautiful, amazing, incredible, forgiving, patient God. So to wrap this up, go get baptized. If you aren't sure you're saved, Go find out. Don't let another day pass. Pause this now. Don't even care about my last final words. Seriously, go find out if you're saved. Talk to your pastor. Talk to a friend. Find out. Do whatever you got to do to know if you have eternal life because God's word says that we can have confidence in it. You can have confidence. It doesn't matter how you feel. It's about what you truly believe. If you're afraid of getting in front of people, don't. Don't be controlled by fear. Don't be controlled by anything but a desire to obey God. Because as we talked about, to be a Christian and to choose not to be baptized is to choose disobedience. It's to choose to live in rebellion. And let's be honest, we hate living in rebellion. Being rebellious, being in love with sin more than God, is how we got into trouble in the first place. It's what God rescued us from. It's what Christ died to redeem us from. Don't go back to that. As with everything in our lives, we want to obey God. We want to surrender everything to Jesus Christ. And baptism is a matter of obedience. So wherever you're at in your Christian walk, whatever reasons or excuses you've made in the past not to get baptized, go now and make the decision to obey God and publicly declare to your church and to the world that God has taken an unworthy sinner and made them a new creation in Jesus Christ. Don't do it because you want to check off something on your legalism checklist. Don't do it to make your parents or your spouse or your church happy. Do it out of an obedience and a desire to love, honor, serve, and glorify your God. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. 
We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 